All right, well, you guys may be seated. <clears throat> we are thankful for this moment, and I'm thankful to be back. Randall, I've been gone for the last few weeks. Went down to visit uh, Anna Catherine down in Argentina, and it was a very good time seeing her. Thanks for praying for us while we were gone. And uh, just, again, a time for us to recenter and connect with the things the Lord's doing. And I'm excited over the upcoming weeks just to talk through some of those things that we believe God is doing, um, speaking to us in our midst. And um, I'm having a hard time getting my iPad to work. Praise God. There we go. Come on now. Oh, my gosh. There we go. I love technology. <laughs> Fantastic. How's everybody doing? All right, good, good. Carl, bring the lights just a little bit brighter for me. So, yeah, this would be super helpful. Thank you. That way I can see everybody. Uh, thank you. Keep on coming. Who are, whoever's back there. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's dive in this morning. Uh, we may go a little bit long. Obviously, we've had baptisms this morning. We're going to be covering Acts chapter 5 this morning. And I, I want you to recognize it's an, actually an interesting chapter to dive into after just celebrating such a beautiful thing in baptism. What we just celebrated was this, the beauty of Jesus, right? This beautiful expression of his love, his passion, right? his desire to go after people, to long for people, to be in relationship with them. And this morning we're stepping into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? This, this moment of, of God's judgment, this moment of God's moving, the nature of people's sin. And this morning I'm going to take some time and link them at the end, but I want you to recognize that this message I believe is, is vital for where we are in the church today, and we'll talk through some of that. There's a form of Bible study taught in, in, in all seminaries called IBS, or inductive Bible study. It's a way of reading Scripture where you learn what Scripture is saying, not by reading commentaries or studying the Greek, but instead by reading every Scripture in the context of everything before it and after it. The idea being that the writer has given enough context clues in kind of what enwraps around it beginning and end to get an understanding of what every part of Scripture means. And so the idea is we're, we're never fans of taking like one Scripture kind of pulling it out by itself and then teaching on that one scripture because the reality is that one scripture is spoken to from everything before it, chapters in advance, and then all the chapters that are afterwards, right? Every verse, every bit of scripture is in context of everything that's written around it. And so Ananias and the story of Ananias and Sapphira then are no different, right? If we just isolate that story by itself, it's a little bit crazy, but when you put it in context, of everything before it and then everything after it, we begin to get a better grasp and understanding of what's happening in the story. The first word of chapter 5, verse 1, that we'll see is the word but, or in the NIV, it's the word now, right? This is a conjunction word. We understand this from our English days, right? It's a conjunction word. It's a, a linking word. It's meant to connect two different ideas, two different thoughts. And here, Luke is linking the previous story in Acts 4 to the current story here in Acts 5 with the hopes and intent of building out a comparison. He's comparing one event with a separate event, and then the end, the last two-thirds of Acts 5, then is speaking to what we see happen in both of those stories and comparing them. The last two-thirds really speaks volumes to what God was trying to teach and what Luke is trying to teach to Theophilus and his readers there in the end of chapter 4 going into verse five, chapter 5. 
And so in this this morning to recognize, we're going to touch on the last two-thirds at the very end of the message because I want you to begin to see what the effect was of this story in the moment. So with that in mind, you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 11. And we'll kind of go through different pieces of this. And like I said, at the very end, we'll go from chapter 12 all the way to the end, but very quickly. It says this, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Crazy story, right? Unprecedented in the New Testament, not unprecedented in all of Scripture. We're in in the Old Testament. You see four different times where God takes someone out because of the nature of their sin. You can think of Achan with Joshua being one of those. But this is unheard of in in the New Testament. But the heartbeat of this story and the whole section of Scripture for us is actually going to center on verse 11. It says this, and great fear, it's on the screen, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I'll read it again, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The heartbeat and the center point for this entire set of verses hinges right here on this moment. Here the word fear is speaking directly to our understanding of how we view self, listen, how we view self in view of a holy God, right? How, where I am in my life, and then how I'm viewing my life and myself in view of how I see God. It speaks to a healthy conviction of God's greatness and of God's glory on one side, and also the dread and fear of disobeying and sinning against Him. We all understand this. Like, listen, growing up and growing up, I, I had a, 
phenomenal family. My mom and my dad, they loved me richly. They loved me deeply, right? I knew how important I was to them. In the, in, listen, I, listen, I recognized in my parents' life, I was the greatest gift they had ever received, guys, right? I was amazing. They thought I was awesome. Like, I'll never forget one time when I was at my grandparents' house, and I tried to call my parents in the evening to say good night, and they didn't answer. And my grandmother said, well, maybe they went out on a date without you. And I said, they never do anything without me, right? I just lived at this understanding that I was that important in the life of my family. But I will tell you something, and I wonder if you can attest to this and how you viewed your parents. I felt loved, and I hope you did too. I felt like the apple of the eye, and I hope you did too. But I always lived with the understanding they were on top and I was on bottom. That they were the parents and I was the child. I was never in my mind equal to them. Right? We weren't friends. They were my parents and they were in charge of me. And in a sense, they were Lord of my life. (coughs) At the same time, I recognized that I did not want to disobey them. Because I knew it would not go well. And I knew when I did disobey them, when I did something against their will, I, one, it separated me from them. I could feel that, right? Because I'd have to lie to them and hide something from them. I'd have to pull away from them. I would feel separate from them. I would feel a level of shame and guilt because I knew I had disobeyed them. And in that moment, I was afraid of finding out because I was afraid that I might get disciplined. Here's the deal. You know who taught me to feel that way? No one. Because I felt that my entire life. I just naturally, when I was three years old, can remember hiding something from my parents and feeling the weight, feeling the shame, feeling the tension behind it, feeling the separation. Never forget being four years old, sneaking up to my mom's bedroom. There were some matches there that we had gotten when we were at Disney. And we're going to come downstairs with my buddy David, and we're going to light a fire in our backyard because he thought it would be fun. And I remember sneaking up there, grabbing them, and then literally hiding from my mom as I walked out to the back and as we went to light the match I hear my mom's voice say Steve and I immediately did this and she's like what do you have in your hand I'm like nothing nothing huh? and I'm feeling the weight and like oh my god huh? right like what she didn't tell me to feel that way I wasn't taught to that I just naturally felt that way the reality is each one of us have been designed by God in the relationship with those who were above us, who were called to honor and to respect, to not want to disobey them, to not go against their will, because when we do, we were designed to feel guilt, conviction, and the shame that we did something that separates us from relationship with that person. That's the nature of conviction. It's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction says you're in sin. It's separating you. It's killing you. It's hurting you. It's hurting your relationship. Turn from it and walk the other way. And condemnation says you've asked for forgiveness. You have now, but you're still living in the ongoing guilt of it, right? Conviction and condemnation all start in the same place. You have failed, you have sinned, you have disobeyed, and you need to turn from it. Condemnation is the work of the enemy that says there's no hope, right? But conviction says that there's hope as you turn from it and God can save you. 
They're the same starting place, though. You have sinned, you have disobeyed, and you're this person who's above you. Listen, I don't know about you, but like my little, my girls, Anna, Catherine, and Sarah were little. We didn't tell them, like we didn't teach them to feel guilt and shame for disobedience. I'll never forget, I'm two, three years old, and Sarah does something, and it gets super quiet, and you know that's the sign. That's the sign they've done something, right? Because in their quietness, they feel the pull away from us to not want to be near us, right? Because they feel the shame and the weight and the guilt of the sin that they've committed. So this is the story here, this nature of this holy fear, this reverence. This, one of the guys I was reading said it something like this. This is his words. He says, it's on the screen. Just follow along. Pull it up for me. Thank you. Such Fear, this holy fear involves, these are important words. I want you to process this, chew on these. Involves self-distrust, a sensitive conscience, and being on guard against temptation. Believers should have a serious dread of sin in yearning for what is right before God, aware of their weakness their human weakness, and aware of the power of temptation, they should fear falling into sin and therefore and thereby grieving the Lord. The solemn, reverential, revering fear springs from deep adoration and love. It acknowledges that every sin is an offense against holy God and produces a sincere desire not to offend and grieve him, but to obey, honor, please, and glorify him in all things. In essence, this is the important piece here. We're not afraid of what he may do to us. We are afraid of what we may do to him. Do you see how holy fear, this reverence, this honor of recognizing he is not equal to me. He is higher than me. His ways are higher than me, right? I don't want to sin because it will actually break relationship. It causes me to draw away and it produces a death in our relationship. Listen, listen, I feel this way towards Randall every day of my life. I have a high level of self-distrust in myself. I am recognize the power of temptation in my life. I recognize my weaknesses in my flesh, and I live in a holy fear of hurting her because I love her. I fear hurting her. I fear allowing something to happen, giving in, that would cause us to have a separation and break our relationship, let alone my Anna Catherine said to me one time, if you ever cheat on mom, I will kill you, right? I have that voice in my head too, right? But there's this reality that I have a high level of self-distrust because I recognize my human weakness and my temptation. So I live in this reverence of God that I am weak, that he is strong. I'm in need and he can meet that need, right? That's the holy reverence. I have this fear of recognizing self-distrust and a need to live holy, set apart for God's purposes and for him for the sake of not hurting our relationship. Jesus never has anything to hurt our relationship. Only I do. Holy fear awakening inside of us. In this, one of my lines of defense of falling into sin 
is knowing how it will hurt Randall, how will it impact our relationship. And that's the heart of Acts chapter 5, verse 11. The story of Ananias awakened a holy reverence, a holy fear in the early church. Caused them not to trust self, but to lean into Jesus and to steer clear of sin so it would not impact the relationship. In the story, we begin by seeing a comparison between Barnabas, who we looked at, Jamar led us into last week in chapter 4. How many of you liked Jamar last week? Yeah, yeah, there he is. Yeah, there he is. All right, he's so much better looking than me. So here we go. Keep on going. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira. And here's the point about them. Both of them did the exact same thing in the story. They sold property. They brought proceeds of the sale to be distributed among the poor. Barnabas had pure motives. Simply stated, he wanted to love God and he wanted to love his neighbor and he was praised for it. How many of you struggle sometimes when somebody else gets praised and you don't? And that's what's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira in relationship to Barnabas. They see that he does something that they could have done. They're probably telling me, I could have, I could have done that first and I would have been honored. I would have been recognized in the church. And so they devised this plan probably maybe even good-hearted in the beginning. F.F. Bruce talked about this in one of his commentaries. He did say, he said, the reality is he could, they could have had pure motives at the beginning, and then somewhere along the way the enemy began to lie to them. And they just trusted that voice and then succumbed to it and then gave in to temptation. Listen, the enemy can't make you do anything. Only you have the willpower to move yourself into action. The enemy can't make you do anything. Super important. You always have to, the power of God's spirit, the ability to say no to sin. But temptation does feed on your greatest weaknesses. That's why you can't trust self. And so we've become aware of that in this moment. There was this pride that wells up inside of them. They want the honor and glory. So listening to the voice of the enemy to devise the plan, they're going to sell part of the, they're, they're going to sell their property and tell everyone, we're going to give you all the things, but will she really hold it back for themselves? Listen, the sin was not in holding some of it back. Like they had the complete right to hold back as much as they wanted to from the sale. Paul makes it very clear in verse four. He says, guys, it, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Like, you could have done anything you wanted to with this. No one was compelling you to sell the property. No one was compelling you to give any of it. No one was compelling you to do anything. You chose to do that on your own. You had the complete 100% right to do that with no compulsion from anyone outside of yourself and God's spirit in you. The, the, the sin... The sin was not in holding it back. The, according to Peter, the sin was in the lie in Luke 5. They pretended to give the apostles the total selling price. They proved themselves to be hypocrites who were boasting in their gift, even though they had deceptively withheld some of the sale proceeds. So Ananias and Sapphira were not just lying and deceiving, but were in effect robbing from God. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira, again, did not have to sell their property. They could have kept it. There was no compulsion in giving. They could have sold and given as little or as much as they wanted. Instead, they were deceptive. They lied. And in sinning, they sinned against God, which is an important point here. The phrase in 
verse 4 and verse 5 and up in verse 2 and 3. It says, says they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. Verse 4 says, they have not lied to man, but they've lied to God. Earlier on, it literally says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. We see it clearly when we read the story. We can look at it right, looking back and go, it makes complete sense. They were this and that. They completely lied to God. But for them, I have to assume there was nowhere on their radar screen of lying to the Holy Spirit. I mean, they were still giving a fair amount of the resources for those in need. It wasn't, quote, unquote, hurting anyone. No one would have known. But here it is, their actions done in secret. Listen, their actions done in secret with the intent to communicate something that isn't true. And here's the point. This little thing that in their minds didn't seem like a big deal was highly, highly important to God. This is huge. We live in a world that likes to talk about the love, the goodness, the salvation, the kindness, and the compassion of Jesus. And they've lost sight of the power of sin. If there's anything that Peter is trying to get across, that Luke's trying to get across at Theophilus in this story is, hey, don't listen to people saying that sin's not a big deal. The love of the Father's enough. No, sin separates us today when we give ourselves to it. Sin is grievous before the Lord. It is huge, no matter if we think it is or not. And for them, they still gave a ton of their money and resources to the church. But they lied about how much they were giving. And in their minds of it being a sin committed against people, they thought it's a simple sin. No one will know. It's still a lot of money. It's going to help a lot of poor people. But through a gift of discernment and a word of knowledge, Peter sees what has happened. And he says, you think this sin is hidden. You think it's not hurting anyone. It, it, this sin is literally an affront and a lie to the Holy Spirit and to God himself. Listen, all sin, all sin, whether we know it or not, is impacting the world in which we live. Right? Sin separates. Sin closes our thoughts. Sin causes us to get blinded in our eyes. Listen, everyone, listen, everyone, listen to this, everyone who gives themselves to an ongoing life of sin ultimately is led by the spirit of the enemy to a spirit of delusion to believe a false reality. Everyone who gives themselves to an ongoing life of sin has, has to, if they're Christians, has to give themselves to a false reality, a delusional lie the enemy feeds him and literally keeps that person from connecting deeply with Jesus. All sin is a big deal. All sin acts as a barrier that we erect as a wall in our relationship with Jesus. Our sin, big or small in our eyes, tells God we have chosen self over choosing him. It affects everything and it affects everyone. Listen. You take prophetic voices who hear from the Lord, who give themselves to a life of sin, and it keeps them from hearing God and loving others prophetically. 
You want to talk about the gift of healing in action. A person who is walking in sin will be impacted in the flow of God's Spirit to express the gifts of God's Spirit through their lives because a wall has been erected. You want to talk about not hearing God's voice and having a dead prayer life and time in the Word. If sin is present in your life, it's literally you putting up a wall before God and God says, I can't penetrate the wall of sin you've created. I want to, but I can't. You have to repent, turn, and bring down the wall. This is what he's getting at here with Ananias and Sapphira. And as that happened, listen, I wrote this down this morning as I was going through this, this sense it from God's spirit. Sin, I would say, affects the, listen, sin, I would say, affects the health and growth of every church. A church full of people who take sin lightly is a church that is dying. Don't forget, this is going to be always be married to the love of Jesus, salvation, his goodness, his compassion. But it has to be married to a fear of God and a recognition of the power of sin in our lives. Sin is a killer. Ananias, as he heard these words, fell down and he breathed his last. Verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and the same thing happened to wife, his wife. The physical cause of his death is unknown. We don't quite get it. We don't understand it. It's not even important to the message. What is important is to see this as a judgment of God. He is judging sin. Listen, it is true out of his mercy, out of his compassion and love, that God rarely deals with sinners this way as evidence that he can't. But listen. It's not, this is this way is evidence that he cannot or should not. Let me say it again. I wrote this down poorly. Just because he rarely does it today doesn't mean that he still can't or that he still won't. I'm not going to sit there and say, this is a person who needs to die. I, I take all judgment of death on any kind of sin, and I put it back in the hands of God. Says, I don't understand this. I should not wield this knowledge. I should not wield this power. I don't understand whether I just put it in your hands, and I don't know why you do what you do, and I don't know why how this happened here. I'm not exactly sure, but God, I'm thankful that you are a just God who in this moment understood something about the power of sin, and you judged accordingly. Listen. We should not interpret the fact that God really deals with sinners this way. Listen, it's not evidence that he won't always do it. He might. Sin is a killer. God will do anything that he can to expose it and out of his love for us, keep us from it. Which is what we see in verse 11. Again, we're marrying all of this, right? We see a comparison of pure-hearted giving. We see that was true and God honored it. We see a story of unholy giving, right? Lying to, lying to themselves, lying to the people, lying to the apostles, ultimately lying to God. That's what sin is, choosing self, choosing pride. And then we see the result of that. Verse 11 is a church awakened to the holiness of God and the danger of sin. It says this, verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It wasn't just inside the church, it was outside the church. The result of this awakening was holy 
fear, a reverence that God is different than, that we are not equal to him, that he is above us, that he is greater, that his ways are not our ways. It was a reminder that he is holy. He is Lord. He is to be reckoned with. He is God and we're not. And we, listen, and our sin is an affront to him and it will break relationship with him. And it is something that we feel shame and guilt in. It bursts the holy fear. Everyone walked away going, God is other than. And we do not want to sin against him. I want to see two responses that we see in the second two-thirds of Acts 5. I'm not going to dive into all of it. But it says this, or two things that happen, or we see happening. One, it increased the supernatural ministry of the apostles. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 12 tells us the apostles performed many signs and wonders. That's not news, right? We saw that in chapter 2, 3, and 4. But when you look at it, there is a deeper level of respect that people have, a deeper level of regard among everyone because of what they have witnessed. Here, the impact of the apostles' ministry, it reaches a pinnacle as people place their sick in Peter's shadow to be healed. Everyone, it says, everyone who's demonically oppressed was set free. And it says, quote, unquote, all who were sick were healed. Simply stated, ministry among the apostles has ramped up and the people around have a new and rich respect for God and for the Christian movement. It's a result of this moment. When holy fear was birthed, literally then people took sin and they pushed it to the margins and where the holiness of God and where the surrender to God and the holiness of God's people is present, God begins to ramp up things in power. It's important. The second thing is, this is an important phrase, the increase of their fear of the Lord killed their fear of man. An increase of the fear of the Lord killed their fear of man. Look at verses 29 through 32. If you remember, it's the story. Peter and the apostles have gone out. They're proclaiming the word of God. They get thrown into prison for it. God opens up the prison doors and says, continue to go preach. They begin to go preach. The religious leaders get all upset, bring them back before them, begin to challenge them. And Peter says this. Peter and the apostle, other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God, listen, then begin to talk about this testimony, confession. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Basically what they're saying is this. Who do we listen to, you or God? We have experienced something so profound that we recognize the fear of God trumps any type of moment of fearing you. We will always choose fear of God. We don't really care what you say if it's opposed to God's will. The fear of God killed the fear of man. They would rather die than sin against and disobey God. So, What's the long-term impact on the church? What happened in this moment? How did it impact the church? 
with this awakening of the fear of the Lord. Well, Acts 9.31 says it pretty clearly. Luke says this. You can put it on the screen. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Listen to this phrase. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is truly a description of a healthy church. Listen, this morning I'm talking about the weight and the gravity and the power of sin. Right? You're like, Steve, you can make it a little nicer, right? You can talk about the love of Jesus. That's all we ever do, isn't it? In churches, everyone's like, don't listen. You've got to listen. I've sat with pastors in mega churches say, hey, don't speak anything too weighty. Always counterbalance it with something positive, right? We don't want to lose people. The truth is the truth, people. The truth is the truth. Luke wanted to make it really clear. The Ananias and Sapphira story paints a picture that there were people in the early church in the middle of the greatest revival the Bible's ever talked about that were living in sin. They were deceptive, and they were, they were literally opening themselves up to the work of the enemy to cause and bring division in the early church, and God hated sin. He didn't hate them. He hated the sin. We have to begin to give ourselves to the fact that sin is real. If you have history of churches abusing and talking about sin, you have to get healing for that. But be honest about sin. It's killing people, and it may be killing you. The long-term impact. Listen, we, this morning, we celebrated baptism. Let's go back to that moment, right? God, go back to that moment. That was fun, man. I cried a little bit when the dad spoke, the mom spoke, whatever it was, right? We celebrated the joy and the beauty of it and felt the encouragement of Jesus. I believe that some of you literally felt the love of God, something awaken inside of you again. You felt encouraged by God's spirit, and we celebrate it, we enjoy it, and we embrace it. Grab hold of that truth this morning. That is true for you. It is alive. It's a massive counterweight on this side over here. We want to celebrate and fully engage. But this morning, we also must be honest about the other counterweight about our sin in pursuing a holy fear in our relationship with Jesus. We must recognize our weakness. We must embrace a level of self-distrust and recognize at any moment we can give into temptation and we can fall into sin. None of us are immune. And we must be honest about it. The reality will probably be that God won't kill us, praise God, for the sin that we commit like we read here in the story. But guys, you know there's more than one type of death. Yes, there's physical death, and that might be a grace for people. Because I would say it might be better to go ahead and be killed at 20 years old in a sin that I will never have redemption from than live for the next 50 years in sin that's only separated from God and caused me to be spiritually dead. Yes, there's God's desire to bring about repentance. There's God's mercy and compassion. But we have to recognize that we may not be physically dead, but we can be in the church, going to small groups, serving somewhere in the church, praying in prayer meetings, and be spiritually dead because of the choices and the lifestyle that we've given ourselves to. 
The response this morning is very simple. It's on the screen, James chapter 5, verses 16 and then 19 through 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working or availeth much. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you, verse 19, wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his or her soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'd like the worship team to come forward as we end our time. What a crazy day, right? A moment of celebration of the Lord's, this is this, this Lord's moment here in baptism, celebration, the encouragement of God's spirit, and then talking about Ananias and Sapphira. I read one person saying all of his volumes of scripture, Charles Spurgeon never once spoke on Ananias and Sapphira. It's just not easy. Power of sin is nothing that's, listen, you're not walking away from that going, oh, that's so touchy, feel it just feels so whatever but i will say i believe it was the great work of the enemy pulling the wool over our eyes to make us pull away from the language and the conviction about sin in our lives so that we'll just live in it the entire time and never be honest about it conviction ask god for it There are some of you that have been living in some sort of little sin for so long, you've actually grown immune to the voice of God's Spirit in your life. You've said no for so long that He just kind of turned you over to it and said, okay, let's see what happens. All of us need to say, God, would you open up my eyes, convict me of all sin, known and unknown and unknown. God, remind me of the places that I've given myself to that are literally hindering my relationship with you. God, show me the areas of small things that I don't even realize are hurting anyone. It's not just hurting me, not just hurting, not even hurting God, but hurting everyone in my life. I don't even realize it. Moms and dads, your sin is hindering you being a spiritual example for your child. Stop it. Be who your children need you to be spiritually. Wake up and repent and be the Christian mom, the spiritual mom, the spiritual father that God has called you to be. Men, wake up from your sin and be the husband that you know deep down that you're supposed to be. Love God and love your wife. Repent of your sin. Confess it to somebody. May it be, listen, you may confess a large sin and it may not go well for you for a while. So be it. That's just the nature of sin, right? Because the funny thing about sin is this, and you'll experience this. If you're carrying a massive, weighty sin, you live in the shame of it, whether you actually name it or not. And the moment you come clean about it to somebody, you take the dung, poop, that's been on your windshield and kept you from seeing, and now you've put it on somebody else's windshield. And the crazy thing is you feel better. 
That's what happens. Now it makes their life miserable. And it's a long journey of redemption and of building back trust, maybe whatever it may be. But the idea is even in that coming clean, there's a peace that comes because you're not meant to live with the weight always on your chest crushing you. God has designed you to be free. James 5, put it back on the screen for me, Kathleen. I want everybody to read it again. James chapter 5, verse 16, whatever it was. Sorry, I took you away from the song you're doing. She's like, here we go. Therefore, confess your sins. Listen, I don't mean go confess your sins to everyone in the room. I mean find someone that you trust who is spiritually stronger than you, someone who can be a parent to you, someone who can love you, someone who can hold you accountable and confess your sin so they can pray for you that you may be healed. Because that prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Listen, if anyone amongst them, if you know of someone who is wandering from the truth that you love and you have that space in their life, to be honest, Call them back to repentance. Let them know. Let them know. Call them because in doing it, you're saving them from death. All right. It's already 1127, so you know how it works here at Vintage. If you've been around, if not, here's how it works. When, I, when we have a long service and we're at the very end of our day and it's already time to go, right, I get it. We're going to take a deep breath. Okay, I just need you to respond as the Lord leads. If you're in a healthy place and you're like, man, I spent last night repenting of sin and you need to go, then you are free to go, right? Again, there's no compulsion here like there was with Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not saying you got to stay. I'm just saying you just need to be obedient to God. If you feel the freedom to go and it's okay and you've got a busy day, God bless you. I love you. I'm super thankful, man. Let's let God do his work in your life. But you're at a place this morning that you need to deal with some sin. The man, come to the altar. It's a little bit wet up here. It's okay. Just get your knees wet, right? Come all the way up here. Come to the altar. There's something powerful historically about just coming forward and just laying at the altar saying, God, here here are the things. Here is my sin. Here are my confessions. Here are the pieces, God. And you give them to him. Then you say, God, now who would you have me go to to confess? The ministry teams that will be up here, they are trusted people. They are parents. They are those that you can trust. You need to confess to them. Just be ready, ministry teams. You may hear some things. Your job is to love them, not coach them or correct them, but your job is to love them, but then hold them accountable. Say, now what are you going to do moving forward? Right? So love them. So you respond as the Lord leads. Offering baskets are always available for us to give as in, in the context of worship. Communion is available every single Sunday for you so that you can come and celebrate. But listen, listen, this is like, this is heavy. Go read 1 Corinthians. Man, it talks about this. It says, if you come to the, listen, man, I should probably pull this stuff. I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it because it says in the Bible. If you come, basically, if you come to the table with unconfessed sin in your life, then things will go poorly for you. Just paraphrasing. And so before you come to the table to take the elements, you need to deal with the sin in your life. I marry it with the beauty of the morning and the encouragement of God's Spirit. But I also marry it with the understanding that your sin kills every facet of your relationship with Jesus and everyone that you're around. Some of you, your marriages are going poorly because you have unconfessed sin in your life. Frickin' deal with it. Sorry. So Jesus, do as you do. 
I'm asking for the weight of your spirit to now land. People, it's not condemnation, it's just conviction. Your weight is a gift to show us these things are killing us and need to be dealt with. God, you know the sin even this week that I've been super aware of in my life. The moments, God, when I did not speak to someone in the way that I should have. The way that I was negative towards someone that was difficult and painful. And you convicted me of it. God, I was in sin multiple times this week. You and I know that. I had to confess it before. You know, I even confessed it to my own daughter when I was sitting with her by the pool in Argentina, God. Of the sin that I committed, God, against people that weren't that big a deal. But, God, they were a big deal to you. So I just confess, God, I'm in the boat with everybody. I recognize my level of self-distrust. God, come and have your way. pray this in your name. Amen and amen and amen. We do have our kids back in the back that are having to go long because of this. So when you're ready to grab them, if you don't mind, at least one of you, if you have a spouse with you, if not, just grab them. Right, when you come back in here, you can. You guys have a great week. I love you. Thank you for leaving the counterbalance this morning. We love you.